So tonight's event, Writers at the Exhibition, is the second of two events that we have in conjunction with the current exhibition, Collecting for the Boston Athenaeum in the 21st Century, Prints and Photographs. For this event, I invited three of our members, all published authors, William Kuhn, Jill McDonough, and Jack Gantos, to write a poem, a memoir, or a story based on an object of their choice from the exhibition. Now, lest you think this was a completely daft and preposterous idea, um, I assure you that <clears throat> there was considerable precedence for this um, event. Indeed, for generations, the Athenaeum Special Collections have been a source of inspiration for writers. As early as 1827, a recent Bowdoin graduate uh, published a book of poems um, based on uh, paintings at the Athenaeum, had the very romantic title of Poetical Illustrations of the Athenaeum Gallery. There were no illustrations in this book, but they were poems about paintings. And indeed, some of the paintings were about literary works. So it was an excellent example of this long and intimate relationship between the visual and literary arts. More recently, uh, in 2014, um, during my exhibition of World War I posters, I happened to walk into the gallery and there was a literature class there with the students seated in front of the posters writing poems. So, um, over the years, working with the collection, I have often been struck at how artists, particularly 19th and early 20th century artists, have drawn on that instinctive human need to tell a story, to either reimagine our past or to imagine the life of our fellow humans or to make sense of our surroundings. These artists often use um, very strong narrative qualities in their images in order to draw the audience into the picture and to let their imaginations wander. So just to give you a very quick example of this, one of the fav my favorite objects from the show, which is this um, factory view. Um, this has been one of my favorite pieces. I've sort of had a, had a love affair with this print over the past eight years. Um, it started out as an advertisement for um, a factory and the factory's uh, products. Um, but today, it's a great historical document of uh, the Industrial Revolution here in New England. Um, but you can see there's so many narrative possibilities in this image. So here you can see that ship sort of pulling you into the image. And there's um, a little person up here and a person waiting there. I've often wondered who that person is and how long has he been waiting. Is it a hot and sultry day like today? And there's also the counting room there with people entering the counting room. And then in the corners, we have uh, pictures of the um, various laborers in the machine shop, the boiler shop, the pipe shop, the foundry, often wondering who were these people. Uh, probably young farmers who had to escape overpopulated farm areas and uh, were looking for a regular check in that counting room. But they were working 10 to 14 hours a day, six days a week. Um, did their work drive them to drink? Did they go to church every Sunday? Did they live nearby? Who were their family? You can see that these images have so many stories to tell us. Um, so tonight's event, I have actually chosen three very different writers, um, all abundantly talented, but all with uniquely different literary skills. However, they all share one thing in common, and that is real estate. At uh, one time or another, each of these speakers has been a regular inhabitant of the fifth floor, that space in the clouds where so many novels, poems, short stories, dissertations, and screenplays have been written. So I'm going to introduce each of our speakers and let them speak, and afterwards we will have Q&A. So our first speaker tonight is William Kuhn. Um, he is multi-talented. He is both a trained historian, 
a biographer, and a novelist. Those are genres which um, require very different literary skills. He is the author of the history, Democratic Royalism, the Transformation of the British Monarchy, 1861 to 1914. He's the author of three biographies, including um, The Politics of Pleasure, a portrait of Benjamin Disraeli, and a less traditional biography, Reading Jackie, an autobiography in books, which has been a very popular book here at the Athenaeum. It's a look at Jacqueline Onassis's career in the publishing industry, and it's based on the premise, one that we can all understand here, the premise that the books a person publishes or writes or reads reveals something very important about that person. His most recent book is the very delightful novel, Mrs. Queen Takes the Train. And I assure you that um, whether you are an Anglophile or a non-Anglophile, you will enjoy this book. So please join with me in welcoming the very charming Mr. William Kuhn. In 1887, Dennis Miller Bunker was 27 years old. Born in New York, he trained as a painter in Paris. Bunker loved Paris, but he had to come home after only a couple of years. He was broke. He got a job in Boston as a teacher at the Cowles School, a new art school on Dartmouth Street. He thought Boston was narrow, provincial, and moralistic. More than anything else, he wanted to get back to Paris, but he couldn't afford it. John Singer Sargent was five years older than Bunker. He also trained in Paris, and unlike Bunker, he had a meteoric career there. His work won prizes, and many prominent people commissioned portraits from him. Then, suddenly, disaster struck. He painted a picture of Virginie Gautreau, later called Madame X, which everyone loathed. Suddenly, the critics turned on him, his portrait business dried up, and Sargent had to leave Paris, too. He was a shy man who felt he'd been slapped in the face. He considered giving up painting and becoming a professional musician. Isabella Gardner uh, saved him. She was 16 years older than Sargent and 21 years older than Bunker. She was a Boston matron married to Jack Gardner. The Gardners were local blue bloods, but she was a nouveau riche New Yorker. Her manners were gauche, and Boston initially disapproved of her. She liked to shock people, and that may have been why she invited Sargent to Boston late in 1887 to paint her portrait. She also knew and liked Bunker, and Bunker sometimes escorted her to Boston fancy dress balls that Jack Gardner refused to attend. Who wouldn't mind going to a fancy dress ball with him? <laughs> now, um, none of those images are in Katharina's exhibition, but this one is, and it's important. I want you to look down those tracks. This is the Columbus Avenue station on the old Boston and Albany Railway, which is no longer there, but it's roughly on the site of the Back Bay Station today. If you look down the tracks, just a few blocks west of the station, uh, the tracks ran right under the windows of Dennis Miller Bunker's studio. All I've just told you is true. Now I'm going to tell you something I've made up. Bunker took Sargent through the doorway of his classroom at the Cowles School. There were paned windows and a scuffed wooden floor. The students' easels stood in confusion around a central table where a wine bottle, a gouged apple, and a bruised banana huddled for warmth. This was his student's still life assignment. Bunker, using a grand gesture for a modest space, said, My atelier. Sargent came in tentatively and looked around. 
Just at that moment, a train rumbled under the windows. The room darkened from its smoke. Fumes of charcoal and engine oil came through the cracks of the window panes. The floor trembled. Afterwards, cinders and smuts silently floated toward the floor. Bart Sergeant bent over and coughed. Bunker coughed <coughs> and laughed. Next stop, Springfield, he said. Sergeant finished coughing. How do you stand it? Oh, the trains stop around midnight. There's nothing until about five next morning. I have long, peaceful nights. What? I sleep here, too. Bunker walked across the room and moved a canvas screen. There was his single bed under a chenille coverlet, as well as a table with china jug and basin. He felt the scene was ridiculous and pathetic. Sergeant felt something different. It was a ghost of what he'd felt long ago when a, a cadet had shown him where he slept on a warship below decks. There was something intimate in being shown where someone slept. Not much room for company, he said. Believe me, there hasn't been much call for that. There's a woman down the road, Doreen. She models in the life class. I tried to get her to stay after class, as it were. She took one look at the bed and howled. Sergeant smiled. She kept laughing as she walked out the door. Too bad for her. I started my own drawing of her. It's in here somewhere. She's never let me finish it. Bunker went up to a trestle table and began paging through a stack of drawings. At least, I think it's in here somewhere. Bunker noticed Sergeant looking at him. Oh, yes. It's a mess in here, not like your studio, I'm sure. What do you mean? I saw a photograph of your studio in Paris. Everything just so. You standing in front of your picture of Virginie Gautreaux, proud as can be, savoring your revenge. Revenge? What on earth are you talking about? Yes, the revenge we all want for the insults they pay artists, for living in obscurity, for being poorly paid, for being told we've chosen an impractical career, for all the people who've said our work is no good. Every painter wants revenge for that. Re Virginie was your, your big so there, a magnificent picture you knew would put you in the first rank of Paris painters and grind the critics' faces in the mud. It didn't quite turn out that way. And that wasn't it. There was something in what Bunker had said. He hadn't wanted revenge, but there was hubris, some pride in his daring the critics with the portrait. He felt as if he'd been punished for overconfidence. Sergeant cleared his throat. He wanted Bunker to like him. He decided on a confession. You know, she was difficult, Virginia, I mean. And in the later stages, she wouldn't sit for me at all, so I had to get someone else. To stand in for her? So what? I've done that before. We all have. I know, but I didn't take her dress and put it on another woman or pay another model to sit for me. I had a friend, you see. He was sitting for another portrait. He was a close friend of mine, actually. Sergeant gave Bunker a sidelong glance to see how he reacted to that. And well, all the last sittings of her were really of him. Bunker closed his eyes and laughed. <laughs> I'm telling you the truth. Old man, I don't doubt it. He went back to the stack of sketches where he kept his place with his finger. He resumed turning them over, still chuckling to himself. Madame X is really a chap. <laughs> That's what you're saying, is it? Sergeant didn't like being laughed at, especially when he'd told Bunker something important. Here she is, Doreen. Bunker showed an unfinished drawing, showed uh, Sergeant an unfinished drawing of a female nude. She was voluptuous. She lay back with her breasts falling off to her sides. Her knees were up. It wasn't a cool classical pose. It was something for the locked cabinet at the back of the gallery. Sergeant was still angry. The thing is, the thighs are wrong. What? Completely wrong. This one should be shorter and further away than this one, he said, pointing. I'll tell you what. I'll help you fix it. Go and lie down on the cot over there. <laughs> do you mean... Come on, do as I say. Go lie down. 
Sergeant picked up a spare drawing board and fixed Bunker's drawing on top of it. He picked up a piece of charcoal off a neighboring easel. He'd show Bunker revenge. <laughs> Bunker obeyed. He walked over the cot and lay down tentatively. No, that's not it, said Sergeant. You have to be Doreen now. The whole feeling should be faintly improper. What? You heard me. Now, knees up, head back, and an expression of desire, please. <laughs> Bunker lay back on the cot with his knees up. Not like this. At that moment, Isabella Gardner walked through the classroom door. <laughs> she was delighted to find them together. What have we here, she asked. <laughs> Bunker sat up abruptly. Mrs. Gardner. As you were, as you were, I see the idea. You are an odalisque, a Manet's Olympia, perhaps. Do lie back. She went to look over Sergeant's shoulder. Sergeant wasn't displeased to see her. They were friends. Nor did he mind Bunker being caught in Doreen's pose. Mrs. Gardner, he said. Mr. Sergeant, she said, teasing back. So. That's a fictional version of what might have happened between Bunker and Sergeant and Gardner. But maybe because I was trained as a historian, I sometimes have scruples about making things up. I'd like to play for a moment with the notion that a fragmentary true story is more compelling than even the best historical fiction. So I want to give you a few fragments that I did not make up. Before Sergeant and Bunker came to town, Isabella Gardner had been involved in a scandal with a younger man. Uh, she became friendly with a writer, Frank Crawford. They went everywhere together in public. They also sat together privately and read love stories in Dante. After several months, it all ended abruptly. Suddenly, Crawford left town and went to Europe. Jack Gardner, swept his wife out of town in the opposite direction for a tour of the Far East. Sargent did paint Isabella Gardner some years later, and the picture proved nearly as controversial as the picture of Madame X. The bust was considered too revealing, the pearls at her waist vulgar, and some people thought they saw a halo behind her head, which was a sacrilege. Men in the clubs made rude jokes about it. Jack Gardner forbade the portraits ever being shown again in his lifetime. The summer after the portrait was painted, Sargent took Bunker to England with him to paint in an old mill next to a river. Bunker wrote Mrs. Gardner flirtatious letters from this mill, pretending that he might fall in love with Sargent's sister, Violet. Isabella Gardner returned one of Bunker's letters to him in an envelope after she'd ripped it to shreds. Sargent painted several pictures of Bunker together with Violet uh, in England next to the river. He also painted one small, hazily romantic portrait of Bunker on his own. Then, just as suddenly as Crawford had left town, Bunker quit his job, moved to New York, and got married. Surprised everyone. Four months after the wedding, Bunker died at the age of 29, the victim of meningitis. One of his friends wrote afterwards that Bunker was really a bohemian, a man with a nervous temperament, and that bohemians ought never to get married. In their later lives, Sargent and Gardner both created quiet memorials to him. In her museum on the Fenway, among her priceless Holbein's, Rembrandt's, and Titian's, she also placed several of Dennis Bunker's canvases. They still hang together where she left them, in the blue room. Sargent never married. He hired an Italian valet, Nicola, who posed for many charcoal nudes, which like Mrs. Gardner's portrait, were never exhibited in his lifetime. Nicola lived with Sargent for almost 20 years. At the Boston Public Library, after Bunker's death, Sargent painted Bunker into his frieze of the Hebrew prophets. 
This is up on the ceiling of the Boston Public Library, and you can see it today. It's, it's a little bit um, hazy in this slide, and it's difficult to make out. But at least one critic think that, thinks that's, that's Bunker. We don't know that for sure, however. Sargent never left behind a letter saying that's what he was doing, nor do we know whether Sargent had a crush on, on Bunker and put pressure on him to reciprocate, nor whether Bunker and Isabella Gardner ever had an affair. We don't know if Sargent was gay. We don't know if Bunker was leading on these two powerful patrons or whether he felt something sincere for them both and it all got to be too much for him. We have only pictures and fragments of a narrative. Perhaps, though, incomplete images, like the images in Katharina's exhibition, are enough. Evocative, suggestive, in no way definitive, they nevertheless have the, have the power to hint at stories that we seem to discern if we can identify with, sympathize with, even love these characters from the past. Thanks. Thank you so much, Bill. That was wonderful and a great example of um, the historical imagination at work, a much undervalued trait in our society. Um, and I will never look at that blue photograph the same way again. So our next speaker tonight is Jill McDonough. Uh, she is a poet, and she has won the Pushcart Prize um, three times and has been the recipient of numerous fellowships, including the fellowship from the National Endowment for the Arts, the Library of Congress, the New York Public Library, and the prestigious Wallace Stegner Fellowship from Stanford University. Ms. McDonough first became an Athenaeum member in 2001 after being awarded the equally prestigious Athenaeum Fellowship. While a fellow here, she did research for her first book of poems, Hapius Corpus, which is comprised of 50 sonnets exploring the history of capital punishment in the United States. For 13 years, she taught incarcerated students, um, college students, as part of Boston University's prison education program. And in 2001, she edited a compilation of poems by prisoners entitled Forgotten Eyes. Her poems have been published in a variety of periodicals from Slate, to Baltimore Review, The New Republic, The Nation, and the wonderful Three Penny Review. In 2012, she published two books of poems, O James and Where You Live, and next year, um, her next book of poetry will be published called Reaper. She currently teaches poetry and directs MFA program at UMass Boston, and if, as if she had any more time, she is also the director of 24 Pearl Street, which is an online road writing program at the Provincetown Fine Arts Work Center. So please welcome Jill McDonough. Thanks so much for coming, and also I really wanted to thank Katharina not just for the beautiful exhibit that I'm sure you guys have all seen, but for the opportunity to let me say out loud and in public as often as possible how much I love the Athenaeum. Uh, not just because of the, it was $1,500 that I, I got a membership, $1,500 and a carol for a month in 2001 when I was working on my first book. And, and the uh, intelligent, thoughtful, kind, generous to a fault attention of the staff here who did things for me like when I wanted to know what Charles Dickens looked at when he came to visit Boston like was there was he interested in any murders at the time maybe and they were like oh yeah definitely we can <laughs> here's a map we can show you where he walked I was like yes that's exactly what I so this was a, um, oh, and I wanted to say too that not only do I love it, but now I'm able to bring my students here and um, Mary knows that my graduate students now come in, look at the rare books room every, every fall semester and then they end up writing about the stuff that goes on here too. This fall I'm bringing two scholars from Kurdistan. I don't know what they're gonna look at, but Mary's gonna figure it out. Uh, and then 
In the fall, I'm also bringing um, these pairs of students, um, UMass Boston graduate students, with Boston Public Schools high school students. The Boston Public Schools high school students are all taking a class on street trauma. Um, many of them have experienced violence in the streets, or they've got parents or other family members that have overdosed. Um, they've had something bad happen to them, and we want them to be able to write about those stories. So the very first thing we're doing is bringing them here to expose them to generations of stories that Bostonians have been able to tell about their own lives that are given a sort of pride of place here so they know that they belong. So thank you. I really want to thank the staff for... for making everybody welcome in the Boston Athenaeum. All right, here's my thing. This is how I picked it. Um, first of all, I, uh, I wanted to be able to walk around Boston, and you can see these two places. In the I get a laser pointer, don't I? Or you, you kept it? You hogged the laser pointer? Okay, cool. I love laser pointer. Oh, yeah, there we go. So uh, I wanted to walk around here and find that building, and I wanted to walk around here and find that building. Um, but mostly what I was interested in is these two families. And you can see that this one says uses tea and coffee, and this one says uses Preston's chocolate. So it's a little cautionary tale about what happens to you if you make the big mistake of drinking tea and coffee instead of giving John Preston money and drinking his cocoa. <laughs> My dad has already ruined my whole story by looking at this and saying, he probably was also in the coffee and tea business, because it's hard, actually, to for sure tell a difference between the two. My mom is here, too, and I bet you $100 that she's got a brownie in her purse, which is another reason that it's kind of fun to do a, a, co a cocoa chocolate thing. So I have a poem that I'm going to read to you about them, but while I was thinking about those two families up there, it I made me think, as almost everything does, of Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, which, you know, everybody's poem needs a little bit more Ta-Nehisi Coates in it. About 18 months ago, all of us were um, talking about this book, um, in particular the idea of the invention of whiteness, about race as a social construct. We're all thinking of these kinds of inventions that, um, that are impacting our lives so much. Um, so, too, th these are these ridiculous inventions, this imaginary... Uh, distinction between the family that drinks tea and coffee and the family that uses Preston's chocolate. And we can see that that is crazy and made up, but it's really hard for us to see the race is crazy and made up. So I wanted to read to you two little bits of Ta-Nehisi Coates um, that give you a little grounding, and then I'm going to read you the poem. So when he talks about race as a social construct, he doesn't so much use social construct as he uses the word dream. That It's a dream whiteness. Um, he uses a capital D a lot. So here we go. I have seen that dream all my life. It is perfect houses with nice lawns. It is Memorial Day cookouts, block associations, and driveways. The dream is tree houses and the Cub Scouts. The dream smells like peppermint, but tastes like strawberry shortcake. And for so long, I have wanted to escape into the dream to fold my country over my head like a blanket. But this has never been an option because the dream rests on our backs, the bedding made from our bodies. If you're thinking about who profits from these dreams, this one is very clear. It's John Preston who wants you to have an idea about how awesome your life is going to be as soon as you start drinking hot cocoa every morning. It's a little trickier to understand who profits in America. Um, so here's a nice paragraph about that. The dreamers accept this as the cost of doing business, accept our bodies as currency because it is their tradition. As slaves, we were this country's first windfall, the down payment on its freedom. After the ruin and liberation of the Civil War came redemption for the unrepentant South and reunion, and our bodies became this country's second mortgage. In the New Deal, we were their guest room, their finished basement. And today, with a sprawling prison system, which has turned the warehousing of black bodies into a jobs program for dreamers and a lucrative investment for dreamers, Today, when 8% of the world's prisoners are black men, our bodies have refinanced the dream of being white. Black life is cheap, 
but in America, black bodies are a natural resource of incomparable value. So those are the things that were going on in my head when I started writing this poem while I walked around in these spaces thinking about these two families and what, what, they're, what they're doing in there. I think the only thing that you might not know for sure, Millie Vanilli, are you familiar with the, the group Millie Vanilli? You're nodding, that's fantastic. Yeah, Millie Vanilli, um, uh, uh, co complicated in part because um, the voices, there, it was like two guys, but there were other guys that were doing the actual singing. So um, that's a kind of useful thing to have present here. Um, and also the, it mentions Ann Taylor Loft. This is a woman's clothing store, which I refer to as waspiness commodified. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Another America. The Athenaeum asks me to write about one of its prints and photographs. I choose an old ad for Preston's chocolate. Rich colors, cocoa pod, two families, both white. One drinks cocoa, one coffee and tea. I can translate from 1868 okay. America, there was a time we preferred our family's fat. The family using tea and coffee's wife is haggard, lets a scrawny dog beg tableside. Dad's disengaged, too depressed to hug unhappy kids. But the chocolate family, they drink cocoa in some bizarro world, another America. So many Americas, North and South, ex-slave, Irish famine escapee. At the time, we were deciding, keep deciding, what American means, who gets to win. This leads me to Obama's 2004 One America speech, MLK's Two Americas, 68. I read the transcripts, pauses for applause. See, it took two geniuses to say what's in this ad. 1868. A hundred years before MLK, who doesn't need a cup of hot chocolate, a little time out, comfort, sweetness? Even white people try to make the right choices, stay on top, no white child left behind. I spend months in Boston's chocolate history. Preston's office at 162 State Street is gone now. At the Marriott Custom House, nobody selling timeshares likes anybody asking questions with a pen. <laughs> White lady in charge, she hates me. But the marble-columned porch, its picnic tables are open to the public. Bring your lunch, public. Look out on where the office was. Help me hate that lady back. <laughs> the aquarium tea stop, Black Rose, Ned Divine. At the Ann Taylor loft, it's summertime and the linen is easy. <laughs> I loves you, Ann Taylor, waspiness commodified co-opting one Jewish genius's song of what it is, what it might have been to be black. Oh, my America. White tourists in the rain by Quincy Market. Nobody taking up the poor duck tour ticket lady in the rain. Blame it on the rain, she sings, quoting Millie Vanilli. Rain, rain, rain. Down at the old chocolate mills in Dorchester, handsome surveyors survey a bridge that held the rails the chocolate road. I figure out which mill was Preston's in an apartment lesser's office. It's one of ours, she tells me. The Baker mills are condos across the street. Preston and Baker still competing, even now. These are my people, handsome, hard-hatted surveyors, white lesbians walking huge dogs, black men in super swank suits. Their vintage streetcars are adorable, squealing their rust bucket way to and fro. 
I stop at Simcoe's, get Boston's best hot dog, best black and white shake. I can read the Preston's chocolate ad. It's two Americas. In one, your son is bigger. Maybe everyone there is bigger and older. Maybe when you switch to chocolate, you get to live. Preston's chocolate drinkers, safe as houses. Drink chocolate and love each other. Make more money. Coffee tea dad is still in his dressing gown. Chocolate dad is ready for work. And older, old enough to have lived past whatever tubercular toothache unshaven coffee dad is going through. <laughs> he and son, both head in hand, down in the mouth, distracted. Drink chocolate and dad will live longer, work more. The ad, it turns out, still works. While I read about chocolate, write about chocolate, think about the chocolate trade, race, class, I eat more chocolate than I have in years. <laughs> Cocoa, egg creams, chocolate croissant, M&Ms. I'm responding to some basic snobbery in my blood I can't help. My body is for martinis, silver dishes of potato chips, gougere, cornichon. But I am human, weak-willed, loyal. I will do anything for the Athenaeum, even walk around Boston in all of its weathers, eat chocolate, write things down all day. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jill. That was wonderful. I love the way you um, intertwine the past and the present um, in your poem. And we love you, too. So that's one of the great perks of being a staff member here is our wonderful, incredible uh, members, and many of them become intimate parts of our lives. So thank you. Um, our next speaker is Jack Gantos. He has written over 50 books for people of all ages, from the Rotten Ralph picture books to the Jack Henry and Joey Pigsaw novels for middle grade students and young adults. For something he calls the older reader, uh, he has written novels and the wonderful memoir, Hole in My Life, which chronicles Mr. Ganto's early profession in the drug trade and his very heady days in New York City's Chelsea Hotel in the 1970s. I would personally love him just to write a memoir on the, his uh, time in the Chelsea Hotel. Mr. Gantos joined the Boston Athenaeum in 2004, where he claims the atmosphere of the fifth floor under the watchful eye of the plaster, Mr. Bowditch, had a profound effect on him. He has written a number of novels on the fifth floor, including The Love Curse of the Rumbows, which in his description is roughly about how his great uncles lost their way in life and taxidermed their mother. He also wrote the Newberry and Scott O'Dell Award winning Dead End in Norvelt and its sequel, both of which feature a certain character by the name of Jack Cantos. And he has recently published a new memoir of his uh, so-called failed attempt to be a sociopath while in seventh grade called The Trouble in Me. The cover is absolutely fabulous and is alone worth the price of the book. He has just finished writing a book about writing books and either unwilling or perhaps unable to vacation between books, he is already at work on a new book and I quote him here describing it. It is about an international or intentional mute living in the tropical garden grottoes surrounding the John Deering mansion, Vizcaya, in Miami. So please welcome me and joining in welcoming Mr. Gantos. Oh, oh. hello everyone. Thank you for the lovely introduction. You know, when you write those introductions, you shouldn't really be prone in bed with a drink. 
but sometimes that's the only way it's possible to write them. Um, I was just going to add that I lie much better when I'm prone. Um, so, let's see, where are we? Oh, cocoa and chocolate. I have something to say about that, too. Um, I have been coming to the Athenaeum for a good long while, and uh, I enjoy it here just as much as I think all of us do, really. And uh, there's a jolly good group of us up on the fifth floor, which I will get to. It's uh, a carnival up there sometimes. Um, uh, so I just thought, I just thought um, I'm, I'm not going to do anything that's really fictional, um, just sort of an, an amusement. Uh, you know, like, like if you had a country house and you looked out your back lawn, which went on for hundreds of yards and was perfectly groomed by people you never saw grooming it, um, there would be some sort of fanciful folly out there that you could uh, amuse yourself with. Um, that's what this is. Um, and so it's completely sort of useless, really, except for personal pleasure. Um, so we'll start here. Well, maybe we won't. Here. Ah, there it is. I know. I love this book. It looked like spilt milk by, uh, by Charles Shaw, who was an artist. But he did a children's book called It Looked Like Spilt Milk. And it's sort of like the children's version of a Rorschach. You look into it and you imagine things. And I, I love thinking about this book. And as I walk here, I live in the South End, as I walk here, um, I'm, I'm thinking about all kinds of things. When I walk through the public garden, I look up at the clouds and I try and match clouds to flowers and think, oh, how wonderful and dear that, that is. And, uh, and I like that. And then like rabbits as I'm walking through the, the common and of course the little squirrels, which I love. I love to have nuts and give them to the squirrels. And, and I hope in some sort of ancient way that feeding the squirrels will give me a good day of writing, that you will have a productive day. And I think feeding animals is a very good thing to do, even if they invade somebody else's house. <laughs> oh, let's see. And finally, I arrive. Don't you just love the front doors? Look at those big rosy cheeks. Aren't they so nice? <laughs> And those big eyes, and look at those eyebrows that reflect the eyes. And I, I just love that. And I, and I love pushing through in the half. It wouldn't be half as much fun being a member here, really, if it was just 10. <laughs> wouldn't have done anything. It really, it wouldn't have reminded you of all the Harry Potter business with the underground. At any rate, I push through. I say hello to everybody, which... I do for way too long. And then I come, and sometimes I come right here. And I love this uh, portrait of Mr. Perkins. And I look at it all the time. And when I look at it, I think, my God, it's just magnificent. Here he is surrounded by everything. Look at all the commodities. He was a trader. He was a merchant. And you can see that he's surrounded. He's got a portfolio. He's got uh, Chinese pottery. He's got uh, sort of a big envelope full of letters. He's got a hat that looks like it's spilling things out of it. He's got a little trunk down by his foot. He's got a fancy, of course, rug under him. And he's got, uh, what is that coat? Is it like two or three bears put together? And, <laughs> and, and I, I love looking at that part, the lower part, the below the couch part. But really, what always I'm thinking of is above the couch. Look at that austere, austere pillar there, that arch. And then look at the four different skies above his head. It's like he's got a whole another several universes up there. He's got the clouds and they're all circulating around very fancifully. They don't look, you know, demanding. They don't look wicked. 
They look like what he's thinking about. Look at his eyes. They're over there. And I always think, what is he thinking about, this, this merchant? And he has a vision of something greater, really, than just buying and selling things. So first, let's go to the buying and selling. We'll park his vision. We'll get to the vision. So he's thinking, poof. So I took a trip to uh, Manaus once. <laughs> In 1986, I was writing a novel that was taking place in Brazil, so I flew to Manaus, which Manaus, I love, it's on the Amazon, it's deep into the Amazon, the deepest city there, and uh, it was built on rubber, built on the fortune of rubber, and there's Boston belting rubber goods, look at that fabulous factory, perfectly put together, there's not even, I mean, they don't even have litter in that factory. Look at that. It's so nice over there. And, and look, that, here comes a ship and there's a lighthouse. Everything is so well organized. Don't hit the rocks. Oh no, we won't. We've got the rubber. We will bounce <laughs> off the rocks. And then, and then down below, look at the workers. There they are. They're so happy. And then there's this jungle, which I've never seen. I've been in the jungle a lot, but I've not seen that jungle. And that <laughs> That jungle's all mixed up. The plants are all wrong. Any horticulturist will tell you that. Look at that paddle cactus in the lower right-hand corner. That is not on the Amazon, I'm telling you that. And that's an agave cactus. That doesn't belong there. But it's a wonderful fantasy, isn't it? I mean, it's just terrific. So at any rate, I chose this print because I went there. But also, I chose it because... I went to see this, and this is really what brought me there. It's the Opera House in Manaus, and it's a very famous opera house. Caruso used to sing there. And the greatest thing about the rubber was this, that the roads all around the opera house were lined with rubber. So they were cobblestones and then rubbered over like asphalt, but just rubber. So that if your carriage arrived late at the opera, you would not hear the clacking of the wheels. It would be a silent arrival. And I thought, oh my God, that is really the excess that I love in life. <laughs> and... and Look at this interior, oh, the golden. So the exterior is all rubber and the inside is all gold. Oh, look at that. And you could imagine being in there. And I went to a play, I went to hear some opera in there and it was just fabulous. That was really wonderful. So I start with rubber. I mean, when you think of Manaus, you always think of rubber but this uh, opera house. And the other thing was, there was so much wealth because of the rubber that the wealthy people of Manaus would send their laundry down the Amazon to the mouth at Belém, across the Atlantic, to be laundered in London, and then sent back. Wow, how many sets of sheets can you have? <laughs> Apparently a lot, maybe even rubber sheets. Uh, <laughs> ah, Fordlandia. So this is failed rubber. Henry Ford wanted cheap rubber. In the 1870s, it was against the law to take rubber tree seeds out of Brazil. But they were smuggled out and sent to East Asia in 1870, and the British and the Dutch did it, and eventually those trees grew up, and they got a really good rubber quality out of them, and they had a monopoly going, and Ford was just blistered about it, and so he decided to start his own rubber company, rubber plantation on the Amazon called Fordlandia. So, it was going to look like America, you know, <laughs> like this. And here's another 
shot of it. It's a little grainy, but you could see, you know, nice little houses and yards and ships out there and the factory in the background. Oh, and this was just great. So he hired people. Ford was tough. There was no alcohol allowed. Well, if you've ever lived in Brazil, saying no alcohol is like saying you can't go to the beach and you can't play football. You know, so, you know, unfortunately, nobody did any research. And the whole thing was a failure. And, oh, the weather. I mean, you know. <laughs> Yeah, they're in Brazil. I mean, it's raining, all, you know, and they, they can't get the rubber trees started properly, and they do get them started. And then they fail to realize that, that in the real jungle, the rubber trees only grow seven trees per acre, but they were trying to force 200 trees per acre. It wasn't working out. Good thing they had a hospital, though, because everyone got sick, and then there were riots because he underpaid the workers, and a lot a lot of people ended up here, and this is it now. So that failed miserably. So what did Ford do? He started another rubber plantation, and that failed too. Uh, by the 1930s, he had lost $20 million on that venture, What's a lot of money back then. So then I... Look at, oh, chocolate as well. Chocolate is so great, isn't it? So I'm looking at this. You know, I'm still on the Amazon. So look over on the left. There we are. Isn't she lovely? She's sitting there, you know, a maid of chocolate. And look at this sort of leering, <laughs> you know, man over here, some hooligan, which has been pressed into service to, to guard her. And the American flag, I love that. And then prepared cocoa broma, 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 what is that? I want some. And then, uh, and then homeopathic cocoa. So I think that they're, they're running all of this cocoa as being good for you. And nonetheless, poof, here's the cocoa gang right here. Okay, the men have the long poles and, well, the lowers, mostly women and children, get to pick the pods up. Okay, guys, get at it. Boom, 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 boom. Down through the cocoa plantation they go, shaking the pods out, and then people put it in baskets. And then at the end of the day, oh, they probably gather up for postcard pictures. And, <laughs> and sing, I don't know, shanties of, you know, living on the Amazon and their happy little life. So I'm looking at that and like, God, isn't that wild? And then, so then in the gallery, there is, of course, this, which you love, I love, amazing. And I love this because it's just so wonderful and mixed up in certain ways. If you look at the smoke from the chimneys, it's blowing that way. If you look at the boat pulling in the harbor, the wind is blowing behind it this way. <laughs> it's both coming and going at the same time. That's kind of a... Punchline to a bad joke. At any rate, so, so, but I love the machinery. Look how good the machinery, how clean the machinery is. And also this, this faux bois wrapping all around it. And it's like nature and machinery meet. Where do they meet? On the Amazon, right here. See these? Floating logging factories, floating lumber factories, these big machines. And why are they there? They're there for this, and they're there for this, and this is what they're doing on the Amazon. So all of these lovely little machines that we think are doing our work are at beastly work down there, you know, as they carve up the Amazon in front of us. It makes the rubber industry look charming. And then, of course, we have this. This is not in the gallery, but this is the granddaddy of commodities. We've had rubber, we've had cocoa, we've had lumber, and now if you're in northern Brazil, boom. So, just north of Belém, there was a mountain, Serra Palada. There was a 
a lightning storm. Lightning hit a tree on this mountain. The tree fell over. In the roots of the upturned tree was a nugget of gold the size of a pig. And that started off the gold rush. And boom, here it is. So I was down there writing an article for an MIT magazine called Places, an architectural magazine. So what happened is, here's the mountain, and then you would get like a 10-foot plot, and then you would dig them down, 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 and then it would begin to start looking like this as you got deeper, and here are the workers. You could see them. These guys are going down, the others are coming up with the bags of dirt, and you get paid by the bag of dirt. And here they are climbing these, these ladders. It's like a Bosch painting. And then there you are. You finally get up over the lip of that, of that open pit mine. And that person will get a chit that they can turn in at the end of the day for a little bit of something. And so there we have that, the gold. Amazing. Sarah Pallada. Now, back to Perkins. So what's he looking out there at? So we look at all of these commodities that we see, see them in the posters. We realize that, of course, that the Boston Athenaeum is built on trade. It's built on the merchant class. And, and we owe them this much. But, but he is actually looking beyond that. He is looking to the greatest commodity of all, and that is the life of the mind, the commodity that never runs out. That's the great thing about Perkins. So, boom, there you are. Right there, they build the library. Is, Mary, is this 1904? Yes. 1904, I knew she would know right off. And so you can see the life of the mind. There's set up, there's Ralph Waldo Emerson's chair, and Charles Sumner, and Francis Parkman, and Margaret Deland, and so many others, and Hawthorne came through, and Thoreau came through, and so many other greats came through, and they had discourse, and they read, and they talked, and, and they created, and it was just so fabulous. And you don't see anyone being hurt or anything running out. There's always more thoughts, more ideas. It's the factory of the mind. It's the perfect factory. And that's what I think Perkins is thinking about. He probably did not anticipate the fifth floor. That's this floor. So. <laughs> It has become a little strange up there. <laughs> we, we, starting on the lower right, we have like a kind of a duck boat tour that takes place there at least every day. People come streaming through with cameras taking photographs of your computer screen or even manuscript on the side of your desk. They can't help themselves. And so we might as well just like expand the front door and like get a bigger elevator and move the duck boat up and they can circle around Mr. Bowditch who could give them, of course, the navigation to do so. And then, of course, the Starbucks gal, there's cups of that. We'll put us at the top where the fruit up there, there's Dunkin' Donuts. And don't you think, you know, the Colonel, he belongs there. And we're all loving it up there. It's kind of a groovy thing, you know. I mean, nobody talks, but the sound of flip-flops, or it's constantly going through. Flippity-floppity, flippity-flop. I love summer on the fifth floor. Oh. At any rate, we go on. Perhaps we'll get sponsors for all the chairs, I'm thinking, you know. <laughs> At any rate, back there, ah, oh, look there. Yes. So we go down. So that slide was out of control. We go down. At the end of the day, I go down, 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 down. I feel like I'm going down a drain. I'm water circling down a drain. I'm just going down. I've been flushed out of the fifth floor. I'm going down, and I finally get out to the front door. And I stand there, and I look at the ten and a half in reverse. And I love seeing it in reverse. And then I step out, and then I walk a few feet, and I turn around. There are two trees in front of the Athenaeum doors. There are two trees. 
and they seem to be very symbolic to me. I turn around and I look at this one. It's green, it's vital, it's, it's beautiful, it's healthy. And to me, when I look at that tree, I say to myself, I hope I've had a productive day. But sometimes I look at, whoops, the tree next to it. <laughs> and I think, that's the other Athenaeum. That's the other side. You know, it's, it's dried up. It's been ignored. It's dead. That has been allowed to die. And sometimes I think in a very negative way, something, a pall comes over me and I think, you know what? This perpetual machine of the life of the mind may someday wind down if we don't take better care of it. And I look at that tree and I think that's a sad thing to think about. So then I walk home thinking about that tree. Which tree did I get today? The green one or the dead one? Or the one I make up? And then I think, what kind of sheep am I? Would I mention the tree? Can I talk about the tree? Can I talk about the symbolic death of the tree? Or what kind of pig am I? And then I finally just let it all go. And I go right back to the beginning. And then the next day I start that all over again. So that's what I do at the Athenaeum. That's my little walkthrough. Thank you all.